0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. And we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Bonnie Tsui, whose latest book is Why We Swim. She's also the author of American Chinatown, A People's History of Five Neighborhoods, editor of A Leaky Tent is a Piece of Paradise. And there's also A History of Women in the Civil War, Bonnie Choi also writes for the New York Times Magazine, San Francisco Chronicle, The Atlantic, Wired, several other publications. And she is a swimmer. This is the first book in 10 years. What made you think about writing a book about kind of the history of swimming?
1: Well, first of all, thanks, Richard, for having me on. I wanted to write a book about swimming because I realized that it's played such a, a big role in my life and a background role for a long time. Um, but then sort of lately, it's become to the forefront as just something that I realize is something that I need every day. You know, it's like the daily tonic of getting in the water and finding some meditation and peace and, and exercise and immersion in this pretty noisy world of ours. And you know, My parents, you know, they met in a swimming pool in Hong Kong. My dad was a lifeguard. And, and then my brother and I consequently joined the swim team, became lifeguards ourselves. And we just kind of had a, you know, our family history is is around water. Growing up on, on Long Island in New York and on the beaches there, Jones Beach and the public pools and swim teams there. You know, over the years, having swimming be this, you know, this essential thing that I, I use to keep sane. And I kind of wanted to investigate how, you know, there are so many books about running, right? So, we, there, so many of us recognize running as a thing that keeps us sane. And for me, it's not on land, it's in water. And I wanted to write a book that honored that for us swimmers out there.
0: When you first began, I mean, had there been essays that you'd written about swimming that you could kind of go back to and, you know, kind of examine, okay, this is what I have, where do I need to go from here?
1: Yeah, you know, I noticed that over the years, you know, so I've been a journalist, a freelance journalist for many years now, and I would, every once in a while, I would write a piece about swimming, you know, whether it was a favorite lake, uh, my husband and I, our special George is Lake a place. that. We got married and it was a place that is strong in his family history with his grandparents meeting and getting married there and then his parents meeting and getting married there and then us spending a lot of time early in our relationship. So, you know, I noticed that every time I'd write a piece that was, you know, an homage to a place or an homage to swimming as, you know, something that is really special to me, I would get these wonderful letters from people. And I realized that, you know, this is something that people wanted to get more of. And I thought, okay, so maybe there is an audience for the swimming book. And how can I make that, you know, something different from what the world has seen.
0: In that regard, at what point did you start? Did you start with Iceland? Did you start with a history of swimming? I'm talking about how you researched before you even sat down and wrote anything.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I thought about this book for years and years. So I wrote a piece about six years ago for the New York Times Sunday Review, and it was about how swimming is the last refuge from connectivity. You know, that was the piece that kind of kicked this whole thing off, because I got such an avalanche of mail about it that I thought, what structure should it take? How can I present this that, you know, like I said, in a way that's different? And I started collecting all these stories. People started telling me stories about, you know, survival stories and just like extraordinary swim stories of people who who swim in crazy places, but also these very personal histories. And I realized that I wanted to have a way to include all of those things. And so I started collecting all these stories and just really interesting bits of history. So really it was, you know, a few years of just kind of putting these things into a file and kind of every once in a while looking at it and maybe jotting down a few notes or writing a little bit of it. And then, you know, I started to show it to friends I trusted to kind of inquire about how can we present this in a way that makes sense. It's not just a big mess about, you know, the idea of swimming. settled upon this question of why we swim. Why we swim is the title of the book and the way the book is structured is five different ways we can answer that question. It starts with survival and then runs through, you know, health and community competition and flow.
0: And that's why you didn't cover certain areas like scuba, for instance, or snorkeling, or even water sports like water skiing, because it didn't fit it within those that structure.
1: Yeah, you know, and those things are certainly related. Swimming plays such a supporting role in so many sports, so many water sports. But, you know, I wanted to focus on the thing itself.
0: You go into a history of swimming, and that seems to go back, well, to Roman times, but also perhaps to a lake in the Sahara.
1: Yeah. The thing that I kind of mentioned in the book is that the problem with awake is that it disappears, right? So trying to track human history with swimming in the water is, you know, it doesn't stick around. And so I had to come at this from an oblique angle. I like to think about that way, because what is the first evidence really of human swimming? And earliest record of people swimming is cave paintings in the middle of the Sahara. And so it's called the Cave of Swimmers. And it's um, these drawings of people breaststroking up the walls of a cave. And they're dated as far back as 10,000 years ago. And they were discovered by this Hungarian um, explorer named Laszlo Almasy. You know, he had speculated at the time that possibly there were swimmers and there was a a body of water nearby when those pictures were made. And of course, at the time, he was laughed, you know, out of the room, a kook. And it turns out, of course, that over the many decades since that there's plenty of evidence of climate change. And the time, the period this happened was when the Sahara was green. And so it's, it's what scientists refer to as the green Sahara. There were lakes, there were, you know, people migrating around from lake to lake, paleo lakes, they call them, and, you know, making a life along the shores of a lot of, of water bodies in, in what is now the desert.
0: And then, of course, the Romans and over on the other side of the world, the Japanese used swimming as part of military exercises.
1: Swimming, of course, lends itself to being a martial art, you know, something that supports the conquering of peoples and lands all over the place and has been, you know, since time immemorial. And so, you know, there is a lot of interesting cultural history around the world pointing to the evidence of of these stories of where swimming and good water skills were helpful in, you know, the conquering of lands.
0: I noticed, Bonnie Choi, that
1: as you talk about
0: swimming in the book, a lot of things come up that we don't think about. For instance, the way I learned to swim is we had a boat in Long Island Sound, a 33-foot cabin cruiser, and every year from when I was a little kid, My father would wrap a rope around me and put me in the water. And if I went down, that wasn't the year. And one year I stayed up. But I learned how to dog paddle. And what I found in your book is that strokes, dog paddles, crawl, these are recent inventions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the sort of standardization of the strokes to the four competition strokes, as we know them, right? Butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, and freestyle are our, our relatively recent inventions. We have, as humans, as a species, been able to swim for many thousands of years and who knows what kinds of uh, strokes we were using to convey ourselves across the water. But it is interesting to see how instinctively when we are, are first learning how to swim, how we tend to, you know, doggy paddle or do like a sort of breaststroke kick young kids when they're learning how to swim, you know, their natural inclination is not to be doing what we know now as freestyle, you know, the crawl stroke and it points back to the fact that we have to be taught how to swim. We have to learn how to swim. We're not instinctive swimmers from birth the way most terrestrial mammals are and so I find that so fascinating that we come from the water way back when in our evolutionary past. And we're certainly birthed from water, you know, from the womb, but that we have to relearn how to survive and conduct ourselves in the water. That's something so unique to us as a species is that we pass along that cultural knowledge from one generation to the next. And those stories are how we make meaning and, and talk about the importance of how to, to survive in the water. And swimming is one of those skills.
0: What I found from having stayed up by dog paddles is that whenever i went in the water something in me changed and that's another part of your book swimming is meditation
1: what was so wonderful about researching this book is finding out all the ways that we respond psychologically physiologically to the water that our brains that our brains respond to water in certain ways that 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 we are wired to do so that our alpha wave activity Goes up, you know. Those are the brainwaves that are associated with relaxation and calm and creativity, and that the sound of water, the sight of water, and then immersion um, does something to our bodies. You know that we we have like these um, mammalian reflexes, dive reflexes. You know, once we immerse ourselves in water, and that's something that we can't really control. You know that we we're attracted and pulled to the water in ways that we are only just beginning to understand.
0: During this pandemic. Have you been in the water in San Francisco Bay?
1: I have. You know, we're lucky enough here in Northern California to still be able to get in the water into the bay. And so I've been swimming in the bay a few times a week and, you know, getting out to surf in the Pacific when the conditions are right. And so I feel like even though it's not the same Routine that I'm used to, you know. I Actually, my routine, normal routine, is to get into the Albany pool in the mornings, you know, several times a week, four days a week, usually, and kind of filling out the rest surfing or, or swimming in open water. And I just feel very fortunate that I can still get into the water, but it's a different thing. It's a different thing to be in open water than it is to be in a pool. You have to be so much more present. You have to be attentive to the dangers and the risks in those waters. And so that's also part of like what I explore in the book, which is this tension between, you know, swimming and drowning and life and death that I think is really a unique one to the sport that we're always kind of aware that we don't quite belong, but we want to belong.
0: The bay is very cold though.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's all relative, right? Actually lately it's been like, you know, 60 or so, which is balmy for here.
0: I'm trying to figure out, is there a way maybe it's warmer just heading along the Sacramento Delta?
1: Well, I know that floating on the American River is a thing to do in the summer, and I and I have, I just was seeing some headlines of folks there trying to figure out how to do that safely. You know, and it is a weird time for us. It's a weird time for trying to figure out how to get in waters around us safely. It's you know, it's getting on summer, and people are really desperate to jump in somewhere, you know, all across, you know, the country and around the world is just something that we all again are craving. And so it's a weird time, um, certainly to try to manage all of these desires.
0: What brought you to writing about swimming in the green zone in Baghdad about 10 years ago?
1: (laughs) Uh, That's a great story. Actually, that story came to me via a pen pal of mine. So Jay Taylor is the central character in this particular story, in this section of the book. And he was a, a lifelong foreign service guy, been posted all around the world. And he found himself in Baghdad in 2008, in a posting there, to try to restart the Fulbright program, the cultural exchange program with Iraqis and you know it was a time of pretty heavy combat and it was you know very much a war zone and so at the time the green zone was around Saddam Hussein's Republican Palace and so Saddam Hussein and his sons apparently really liked swimming and had pools at all of their palaces around the country and this pool at the Republican Palace was This palatial, crazy, Baroque, like lots of diving boards, fountains, but it was something that was available to people who were stationed in Baghdad to use in the green zone. And so he started to swim in this pool. And then over time, you know, there were UN peacekeepers, translators, local Iraqis who were working with the Americans, other folks from around the world. It was like a a United Nations, a mini United Nations of of people who started to approach Jay and ask him to teach them, you know, give them a few pointers on swimming. And he ended up over the next two years, having a roster of like 250 people who would come for lessons. And then they moved, you know, the, the green zone, zone, moved from the Republican palace to a more fortified structure that had a 25 yard pool. And It was this very, very strange and unique situation where it was a place where in the middle of a war zone that there was community and solace to be found in this pool. And it was a a really amazing story to me, and I wanted to share that in the book as an example of how we find our tribe in all kinds of ways and that in this particular singular moment in Baghdad that it was a place for people of all different backgrounds and situations to come together and you know find peace. And and I think about water as the, the great equalizer when we have access and education to it to swimming, that it is something that we all should be able to do and, and have the opportunity to experience.
0: You spend a lot of time talking about a woman named Kim Chambers. Did she contact you?
1: I was actually introduced to her by a mutual friend of ours, Adam Skolnick, um, who is another water baby, so to speak. He wrote a book about freediving. He said, you got to meet Kim. I know you're working on this book, thinking about this book on swimming. Kim is this legendary marathon swimmer by now. She has an incredible story, and her story anchors the well-being section of the book because... She only really came to swimming as an adult after she almost lost her leg to amputation after a, a an accident when she fell down the stairs of her apartment here in San Francisco. And she started to swim as part of her rehab and then discovered through joining the Dolphin Club here in the Bay Area. Dolphin Club, for all of you who don't know, is one of the from your open water swimming clubs in the world and has been around since, you know, the 1800s and people swim in the Bay and they learn how to conduct themselves safely. And she started to swim with the dolphins also joined the South end rowing club, which is right next door and found this community that helped her, I guess, have a new life, you know, have this incredible new life as someone who has swum from the Farallons to San Francisco. She was the first woman to do so. You know, she has done all kinds of other incredible open water swimming feats and continues to do that. And her story is one that I found so inspiring. And, you know, there's been a documentary made about her journey. It's called Kim Swims, and I encourage you all to check it out.
0: I can't even pronounce the name of the Icelandic guy,
1: <laughs> the Icelandic
0: hero. Uh, how do you pronounce his name? Gudlager Fred Thorson. Okay, I'm not even going to try that. Uh, that got you over to Iceland, and it turns out that some people, their bodies are suited
1: to the water. I mean, his story is really extraordinary. He is an Icelandic fisherman who, in 1984, his fishing vessel capsized um, off the coast of Iceland, and he had to swim six hours to shore in 41 degree water. And you know, for most of us, within 20 to 30 minutes, we would die from hypothermia and exposure, but he was able to keep swimming. And when he finally got to the hospital, he did not show any signs of hypothermia and was only a little bit dehydrated. And how that was possible was that A, he was a great swimmer. B, his body fat resembled that of a seal's, you know, it was two to three times normal human thickness and more solid and it was able to keep his core stable his core temperature stable and him safe as he kept swimming. And he was the first person I ever documented to have this biological quirk. He participated in studies, medical studies to kind of, you know, research into um, human endurance and, and response to hypothermia. I mean, it was this very tragic thing that happened to him, um, but then he's this Icelandic hero You know, what he was able to do is something that looms large in in Icelandic culture, even today. I mean, every year there's a swim done in his honor, six kilometers uh, swim. And I went to Iceland to do that swim and to meet him. In the book, there's a lot of information. What surprised
0: you, shocked you the most in your research, something that you thought, oh my God, really?
1: <laughs> That's a really great question. Uh, one of the things that I was really surprised to learn is that we are born with two kinds of fat. Okay, so part of this whole cold water survival immersion thing, you know, I really wanted to learn about science and what makes some of us seem to be able to withstand cold water immersion more than others. And then I learned about something called brown fat. So we, you know, mammals are born with two kinds of fat. So white fat, which is what we all know to be our energy stores, right? Stores energy, keeps us warm. And brown fat is a different kind of fat that instead of storing energy, it it burns it. It creates heat energy. And so, you know, we're born with only a certain amount of it and then it starts to kind of disappear as we get older. Babies have a lot of brown fat. They don't have enough muscle tone to shiver when they're cold to keep warm. And so their brown fat keeps them warm. What I found was that over the course of your lifetime, you can sort of brown white fat in different ways with exercise and cold exposure is one of the ways to do it. There's also a really interesting research into how capsaicin, you know, in what's in, in like sort of spicy pepper, cayenne pepper can actually also brown white fat and turn it into what's called beige fat. And so it's just like a really interesting rabbit hole to dive down into it, how our bodies have strange ways of adapting and responding to the environment. And so that is a really interesting section of the book about health and you know what we always have seen to be as like the water cure. There's some like basis in like why the water feels so good to us and also that it has health benefits that are interesting to explore. And I just really loved getting a little bit into the nitty-gritty of that.
0: Funny choice. You were born in Queens. Did you live as a little kid in, in Flushing?
1: I was born in Flushing, and then we moved when I was school-aged to Long Island. Um, that's sort of where I went to school. But my family was all in, scattered through like, Queens and New York Chinatown. That's sort of the, the doorway of my family into America.
0: What prompted you to become a writer? I mean, had you always been writing as a kid?
1: Or? I did. You know, I always dreamed of stories. I I would make little books of of stories and and with drawings. My dad is an artist, and so I grew up in his studio downstairs studio. And so we were immersed in this like pretty creative life. And so I I, I knew I wanted to be either an artist, a visual artist, or a writer, and, and that kind of like shook out in college where. I discovered the you know the joys of like creative nonfiction. I, I realized that like nonfiction journalism could be, you could apply some of the the same creative techniques of fiction to tell a really great true story and to animate that story and give it power. And so I think that's something that I have always tried really hard to do in my journalism.
0: Was it Hunter Thompson? Was it Truman Capote?
1: I'm not a gonzo journalist. I am a, <laughs> I am, however, a participatory journalist, I would say. And I think that this book certainly reflects that. What books did you read
0: that put you on that course?
1: I had a really wonderful instructor in college named Natalie Kush. And she wrote this memoir called Road Song, and it was about growing up in Alaska. And she was just this really wonderful teacher. In story, everything that we read in that class was true, but you know, the lens through which you told a story could change the way the reader interpreted it, and that was a really interesting lesson in perspective and point of view, and just how you can weight certain aspects of a story to, yeah, to give it power, to give it resonance, to make it connect to a reader.
0: Your first book. Was uh, this history of women in the Civil War?
1: Yes, <laughs> I was at the time a young reporter toiling at advertising age, which is the trade magazine of the advertising world and business. It was my first real writing job. I had worked at an um, adventure travel magazine before that, but it was my first like full-time like reporting job and I was learning how to, you know, cover media and all that. And I was looking for, I guess I was looking for the creative outlet. And I had written this paper in college on women soldiers in the Civil War and just loved that topic and that experience of doing that, digging the archives. And I was studying under just amazing historians. And I dug it out and I knew that there was a small historical press looking for new books. And I wrote a book about women soldiers in the Civil War. She went to the field.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like your second book was a little bit more to your like, American Chinatown, a people's history of five neighborhoods that's in five major cities. Did someone approach you? Did you figure this book hasn't been written and I need to write it?
1: That's exactly right. I wanted to write a book about these neighborhoods but also about the idea of the neighborhood in the american imagination and how the sort of story and mythology around Chinatowns in the United States contrasted against the reality of the lived experience of, of different generations of Chinese and Chinese Americans in those neighborhoods and again like i mentioned before my family history came through both my father and my my mother's families came through New York and San Francisco's Chinatowns. And I wanted to talk about, you know, three different generations in each neighborhood. So New York, Chinatowns, San Francisco Chinatown, and then also Los Angeles, Honolulu, and Las Vegas Chinatown as, as the a sort of like a new model of what a Chinatown was, like how that it didn't grow from the sort of residential community it was sort of built as a business, and then the residential community sprang up around it. And so I had a wonderful time writing about this because it gave me a reason to investigate my own family history, you know, and hear stories from, from my grandparents and from my parents and other relatives and, and other people in the community. They don't get to share that story and tell it very often. And so it was something that I wanted to do them the honor of, of doing.
0: Bonnie so your most recent pieces, there was an article very recently in San Francisco Chronicle about attacks on Asians due to the xenophobia coming out of Washington. And this is continuing now. There was actually something I was just turning on television just before we got on here. The increase of attacks on Asian Americans, like up 20%. Do you see a trend here, or is this something that has to do with, again, the um, monsters coming out of Washington?
1: You know, I think that the increase in xenophobia and uh, negative feeling towards and racism towards Asian Americans specifically, but just towards all people of color, immigrants, people who are perceived as other, perceived as immigrants, I think that this recent Uptake in that happening does have a, a specific relationship to the pandemic and the political reality of our country today. But I also feel like it is exposing what has always been there in sort of the history of this country and has sort of lain dormant for a while it is useful to remember that in the history of america that it's a country of immigrants and yet every successive wave of immigrants has experienced this vitriolic xenophobia violence racism and that it is a story that is really as old as this country and it continues today and so we have to reckon with that and we can't really make it go away until we really face that in a, in a very specific and obvious way.
0: Hong Kong is exploding. Uh, do you have any connection down there? Or,
1: I do. Know? My father's family, my uncle and my cousins there in Hong Kong and a lot of other relatives. Um, my father actually lives in Guangzhou. And so he's in mainland China as well. And so now, and it's a really Contentious time. I'm I've been watching it very closely and I'm anxious about seeing what happens, but there's it's sort of like it's one of many, many things right now that are causing anxiety.
0: It seems to me that every day it it becomes harder to even turn on the news because everything from Hong Kong to the coronavirus to Trump is just so absolutely depressing. One thing to get out of the depression for a second. You have a bunch of essays and links to essays on your webpage. I found one of them fascinating, which is the history of Chinese chicken salad, which isn't Chinese at all.
1: Uh, <laughs> how did you get to that one? You know, I have always been fascinated by, you know, why is you know Asian salad Asian salad? Why is it called that? Why is Chinese chicken salad called Chinese chicken salad? And so that essay I was actually a piece that that the New York Times Magazine and my editor there had said, like, let's do this. <laughs> and we <laughs> dove down this, you know, really interesting rabbit hole into, I mean, I just wanted to like dig into the, the history of like, is there any basis for calling it this? And I realized that, you know, in the New York Times itself, there were references to, you know, whatever different salads and what they had in common was like, French dressing, you know, like there was a recipe for, you know, Chinese chicken salad or or that had like French dressing in it. It's just just like this weird, what do these signifiers actually, what meaning do they actually have and, and what cultural relevance and what cultural, you know, authenticity is the freighted word. But I wanted to kind of get into like, is there a basis in history? Is there a basis in actual like traditional Chinese cooking that would cause us to to name these salads what we have called them for so long. And um, it was a really interesting exercise and I encourage you all to read it.
0: <laughs> that brings up the entire idea of the relationship of actual Asian culture and what was called Orientalism, the difference between the mythos, both good and bad of Asian or Chinese culture, and the reality. And it seems to me, that in books like American Chinatown and in your essays, that's sort of what you're doing. You're, you're trying to take your own culture and compare it to the Orientalism mythos.
1: Yeah, I think that when I look back on my writing, um, and the writing certainly that I'm most proud of over the course of my career, I have a preoccupation with unpacking this sort of foreign yet familiar viewpoint we have on Chinese and Chinese American culture and history as it is situated in this country. And, and certainly the, the larger history of Asian America, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated and and problematic designation because, you know, Asian American, what does that really mean? Asia is many, many countries, many, many cultures. And to have collapsed that into one term is really misleading in a lot of ways. Many people have written very intelligently on that topic. But like for my own writing, you know, I have been poking at those things and examining them and kind of investigating them. And that's just what I find very, I find it really rewarding. I find it important to um, understand that it is my own lens that I put on it and try to be open to others. Um, and I find that, you know, that's what I try to extend to all of the work that I do as a journalist.
0: But it's so Uh, I understand you've finished up a children's book, Sarah and the Big Wave. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Going back to my other love, (laughs) water, and the main through line in my career is, you know, writing about all things aquatic, among others. I'm really proud of this. I'm really excited about this. This actually, children's book kind of fell in my lap because I had written this big feature for California Sunday Magazine on um, big wave women surfers and sort of in the lead up to it. To a competition at Mavericks, that big wave surf break in Half Moon Bay. Uh, and then an editor in New York, a children's book editor at Henry Holt, reached out to me and said, Would you be interested in writing a children's book about this? And I said, Absolutely. So I wrote a book about Sarah Gerhardt, who was the first woman to surf Mavericks, and um, the, about the day she meets her first big wave. And it is being illustrated by the wonderful Sophie Diao, and should be out next spring.
0: And have you ever thought about writing fiction now?
1: Not really. <laughs> I think that real life is weird enough as it is. But, you know, um, I do love reading fiction, and that's basically when it comes to books. I read a ton of fiction, a ton of novels, and so I'm a great appreciator of all of the words out there. Have you started working on another book? I have, but I can't tell you about it yet. It's early on. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just thinking about it.
0: Do you have any essays coming out in the next couple of months?
1: I do, but I'm still also working on and thinking about them. So um, you'll have to stay tuned.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Bonnie Tsui, whose latest book is Why We Swim. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.